0: The most impressive thing you will see all day, guaranteed. Andrew Elder, well done. So we're in the book of Nehemiah. The good news is uh, we actually have two chapters to teach you. We're going to do Nehemiah 2 and 3 today. So here's the schedule. Those of you that are joining us, maybe it's your first time. We're walking through Nehemiah over the summer. Last week we did the prayer, the opening section of this book. Um, My wife was not here. She watched the, the sermon after and she says, you need To not talk as long, you need to trim it down. And I went back. I'm like, "Ah!" I thought it was. All right, and my introduction was 25 minutes long last week, so if you missed it, you missed a great, great introduction, but my goal is to be quicker, even though we have these two chapters to do. Chapter two, which he didn't read, and chapter three, which he just killed it, reading that wonderful story. So just a quick background. Last week was the prayer, the problem. Here's the story so far. Nehemiah is this Jewish guy who's living with a foreign king. He's a cupbearer, meaning he's kind of in the uh, inner circles of the Persian king back in the four or five hundred years before Jesus, he hears a report that Jerusalem is in trouble. It's been in trouble, but it's kind of was supposed to be on the up and coming, supposed to be rebuilding itself. He hears a report that the walls are destroyed and Jerusalem, the mighty city of the people of God, is actually not at all glorious like it should be. That was the start of it. And what's he do? He prays, God, help me be a part of this solution. So the problem in Nehemiah is the walls are burned down. The people of God, their distinction, they're right there in the Middle East, right in the center of all the action. Even to this day, Israel's right in the center of all that's going on in the world. And they got these walls around them as a way to say, we are in the world, we're right in the center, but we're not of the world. What happens inside these walls is different than what happens outside these walls. We have different values, different systems, different things we say are good, right, and beautiful. And outside these walls, the world system, the way the world thinks is different. The people of God are unique and distinct. And those walls are burned down, and now it's a problem. Fast forward to today, 2021. What is the problem we face? We could list a bunch. I mean, watch that video medical problems, health problems. The thing with being a Christian is you have access to the source of all wisdom in this world. And everybody in the world knows there's problems. This world is not as it should be. The Christians have access to actually the template. The answers to the solutions the, and the answers to all the questions people am asking. What is wrong with this world? The Bible would say this. It is broken because of sin. So we don't have broken walls. We have a broken world. Specifically, just to give you kind of... Buckets to think about what's broken in this world. Genesis 3 is where sin enters this world. Adam and Eve, it's kind of a famous story. Even if you don't come from a church background, you've heard of Adam and Eve and this crazy little snake story. But four things break in that story. The first is man and God's relationship gets broken. Man and God are now separate. If you are in this room and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's because sin. You are separate from God, left to yourself. But it's not just that there's a distance between us and God. There's a problem with man to man. You see, Adam and Eve get in a fight right away. Have you guys gotten a fight on the way here? Like that's kind of common things with married people coming to church. Why? Because sin. All the tension in the world is because of sin. But it's not just sort of fighting between people. There's also this problem: is our relationship to ourselves is broken. Meaning, nobody is hundred percent comfortable in their own skin, in this moment. There's insecurity, there's doubt, there's all this angst, there's anxiety, there's depression. Why? Because of sin. It's broken. But not only that, the fourth thing that's broken is creation itself is cursed. We have cancer, we have earthquakes, we have tsunamis, we have droughts, we have 118 degree weather without any rain inside. Why? Because this world is broken that's what's wrong we don't have broken walls we have a broken world and all of its broken and what is God doing in the middle of all this you don't have to turn there but Colossians tells you what God is up to right in this very moment even as we sit in this church here Colossians 119 says this for in him speaking of Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Jesus is fully God he is God and what is God in the flesh doing and through him He is reconciling to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross the world is broken yet God in the flesh Jesus Christ is reconciling fixing repairing rebuilding all things through the person of Jesus Christ the Bible says we're supposed to be blessed to be a blessing we are reconciled with God to reconcile then others back to God We are comforted so that we might comfort others. We live in this broken world, and we are part of God's reconciliation plan, fixing all things through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what God is up to. Now here's the question. How do we participate in what God's up to? If God is in the business of reconciling all things back to himself, this world is broken, whether you're a secular atheist and you have no category for Jesus in your head you know something's broken or you're a devout Christian you've been walking with Jesus for 60 years you all know there's something broken Jesus says he's fixing it how do we get involved with what he's fixing I think Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3 kind of give us a good picture of how do we as followers of Jesus step into what God is already doing namely reconciling the world back to himself So again, Andrew did a killer job reading Nehemiah chapter 3. We also have to walk through Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. And there's these three movements of the people of God to be a part of in this story, the rebuilding of the wall. There's prayer. We're going to be asking God for big things. And then we're going to see an investigation. We investigate then. And then finally, we work together. We link arms and we get to work on behalf of what God is doing in This world. I want God to directly meet us here this morning, and some of you specifically in things you're wrestling with. So I want to pray and ask God to do that for us this morning. Let's pray. God, this book written so many years ago applies here and now. All those words, all those names that Andrew just read, you wrote down for our benefit in this moment. So by your Spirit, apply your word. Do what you need to do to make us more like you and more in line with what you're doing in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. So here's the first movement. We ask not because our hands are able, but because his are. This is the first chapter. So the first section. So go to Nehemiah chapter 2 if you have your Bibles in front of you. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're just going to walk. We ask. Chapter 1 was all about this prayer. and chapter 2, the beginning is the continuation of God answering the prayer and being a part of this prayer life. What do we learn from the asking of Nehemiah? Let's look together. Chapter 2 verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, here's the context, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So what's happening? Chapter one, Nehemiah says, God, give me favor with this man, meaning the king, King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And now he's in his presence. There's a party going on. There's wine involved. And now he gets to see God's prayer start to be answered in the month of Nisan. This is about a five-month passing from when chapter one started. And as I'm reading this, here's the first thing I realize: Prayer is much more of a story than sort of bullet points in our life. Like it's a journey. Here's how I used to do. I don't know how you keep track of prayer requests. Maybe you just pray them. But I used to have a journal, and I'd fold each page. On the left side, I'd say, I want a truck, June 2016. And then on the right side, when God answered it, said yes or no, I'd write, I got a truck, July 2018. And eventually, that just became hard to keep track of prayers because prayer is not really like this list of things you're asked. It's not like a Christmas wish list. God give me these things and then he says yes yes no yes 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 no. It's more like this journey he brings you on. Nehemiah starts praying in chapter one and now chapter two months later he's in the middle of being a part of his own answer to prayer right in the presence of the king. So the first thing we need to understand is as we're asking God it's more of a journey. It's more of a story he's bringing us on. This is why the way I do prayer now is I use these cards and I wrote... The Watt family's hopes and dreams is one card. Roman Blaise Watt, my second born. I've got a card for him. Why? Because what I want for Roman is not God to answer these seven things, but I want to go on the journey of prayer for my kids to the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. He's going on this prayer journey. The prayer that came to mind as I was thinking about what Nehemiah is doing here is Paul talking in the New Testament saying, God, I pray And I ask you guys to pray on behalf of me that God might open an opportunity for me to share the gospel. Paul is saying, I want this. I'm going to where no one else has gone. And God, you've got to open doors. And I ask all of you to pray on behalf that doors would be open. He's going on a prayer journey. Here's the second thing I see in here. So we got, I took up the wine, verse one there, and I had not been sad in his presence. Here's the thing that just struck me. Prayers are also not answered because we approached it so well. Like one of my prayer cards is that our house would be a magnet for all the boys in the neighborhood. Like my wife is praying the exact opposite thing, just so you know. So they'll kind of counteract. But I want my four boys to be the center of the neighborhood. And I can go about kind of conjuring up and making it. So I bought a ping pong table. We got a pool. We just have good times. I can do the work to make sure that get answered. But in this, we're reminded that even though we know what we want and we can kind of conjure our way to get what we want, sometimes it's just because of luck. Christians would call it God's sovereignty because in the story we see the king is a little bit tipsy. probably, and. Uh, nehemiah is sad in his presence which you don't do you work for the king you're not to cause him any issues especially dramatic issues like some guy being sad in his presence and the king's a little tipsy and nehemiah is sad because he's thinking about the destruction that he sees so just as christians just remember it's not that our prayers kind of logically follow the steps to get the end result God is just graciously going to answer the way he's going to answer. And in this case, Nehemiah gets a little bit uh, help from a tipsy king, even though he shows up and he's sad in his presence. We ask because God wants to answer our prayers. What's the next thing I see? Verse 4. So he's sad in the presence of the king. The king's like, got a few glasses in him. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven in that moment and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long are you going to be gone? When are you going to return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, he just keeps asking for more, let letters also be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. What do we see there? He starts praying. Months later, God, give me favor with this king. He's in the presence. a party's going on. Hey, why are you sad? Well, the city of my father's is just destroyed would you let me go back there request number one yes would you let me rebuild it yes would you give me letters for all the people that i'm going to interact with on the way yes would you also give me wood so i can do yes will you you see the courage is sort of as you start to ask god god answer this prayer and he answers you just get more confident it's like a kid knowing i know my dad's going to do this for me he keeps asking and his courage gets bigger and bigger and bigger That's the third thing I saw. Prayer often pushes us into more courageous and bigger ass than we could have ever imagined. And what's the reason that he can know that God is going to do this? The very end of that section, end of verse 8, says this. This is Nehemiah's summary statement of his prayer life. The king granted me what I asked. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. Period. Period. We followers of Jesus live in a broken world, and we're drawn in prayer towards certain things that we want God to fix. And why is he going to fix it? Because he is controlling. Why is he going to give us favor as we start to ask him for these things? Because his good hand is upon us. Why is this church here? Because his good hand was upon us. We shouldn't have started when we started. We did. Why? Because his good hand was upon us. That is the summary statement you should have for your prayer life. The king granted me what I asked. I got what I wanted because the good hand of God was upon me, period. We ask because God knows it all, he owns it all, he controls it all, and he has a good, gracious, generous hand waiting for us. That's the first movement we see, As we, the people of God, in a broken world, are askers, we're pleaders, we're prayers. we pray for what God can give us. What's the second movement we see here? Starting there, verse 9, we investigate, it. I'll just tell you, movement number two is this, we investigate deliberately because we want our eyes to see and our hearts to feel. What do I mean? Nehemiah doesn't say he's still in Persia. He's still with the king in a foreign land. Jerusalem's way over here. He's way over here. He could just say, I'm going to pray for y'all at a distance. But now we see he moves and investigates for himself. Let's read verse 9 through verse 12. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river And I gave them those king's letters and answered a prayer from the previous section. Now the king had also sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, an added bonus to the prayers. He comes with a sort of entourage of the king's men. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard of this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verse 11, he keeps going. So I went to Jerusalem. And I was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. You see what's happening? He's praying. Months of prayer, months of prayer. It happens. The king grants him requests, and now he's going to go investigate the brokenness for himself. He could have just listened to the people who are smart people who came and said, here's the report from Jerusalem. But Nehemiah goes towards it. The first thing I see in this is we got to see it with our own eyes. Here's a question I have for us. What's the thing you care about deeply? The area of brokenness in this world that you care about deeply, that you're pressing into. I'm guessing it's not something you know secondhand because Joe or uncle or whoever tells you this is the problem in the world. It's something that you've experienced. You've seen. It's happened to you. You've seen it happen to others. That's why you're passionate about why you're passionate. And Nehemiah knows that, and he's going to go and check it out. He wants to see for himself. I'm going to go see. Christians, like, everyone knows the world is broken, They don't use the same language we use from the Bible. Everyone knows. Christians, here's God has placed on your heart certain things. Even the way Nehemiah talks, God put this into my heart. If you get one thing from today, leaving here, knowing, here's the thing that I'm fired up about. Here's what I'm passionate about. Here's why I was put on this earth to be a part of the repairing that God is doing in this world. What is it? We've got people in here exploring prison ministry stuff. We've got foster care families and adoptive families. We've got a lot of people training to be counselors in the mental health field. We've got a lot of public school and charter school teachers. What's your thing? Someone asked, like, what are you about? You got to start a dating app, and you got to say, here's what I'm all about. I'm all about the sons. That's a great thing. Let's go. But like, what is it? Nehemiah is about Jerusalem and the glory of God to be seen in Jerusalem. And he's going to go see it and smell it and walk by it and see it for himself. What have you seen for yourself that is broken in this world? Here's another just, I don't know what to call this, a tip from Nehemiah. Look at verse 12 with me. This is how it, went down then I arose in the night I and a few men with me go down to verse 16 and the officials that would be the Jews of the day did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and I had not yet told the Jews the priests the nobles the officials and the rest who were to do the work here's what I'd say avoid the hype And avoid the publicness of it if you want to be like Nehemiah. What do I mean by hype? Part of what made a lot of last year we were all cooped up hard for long periods of time. And we got racial tension. We've got political tension. We've got churches kind of fracturing. We've got all this stuff going on. And we also have a whole lot of people who aren't like Nehemiah. They found out about an issue yesterday. And they're now an expert today. And they're also well aware of how you all and me are doing this life completely wrong. And they spend all of a day studying whatever it is that is the thing going on in their life. Nehemiah took months of prayer. And then he goes in the night, does not tell anyone. He even leaves his little army and he just kind of riding his donkey, gets off and he's inspecting the wall. Gets back on, does that for three days. Like Christians, followers of Jesus, we should not be the first ones to post. We should be a little more slow and intentional. A statement we like to use around redemption, especially for leaders, is under-promise, over-deliver. Some of you husbands have mastered the under-promising and never-delivering under promise, What are you going to do, Nehemiah? No one knows what Nehemiah is going to do up to this point in the story. That is the opposite of how we've trained people to think and to be a public voice in a public world. What do you think? You should post it right now. You should have posted it like five seconds ago, but for sure now this needs to go to the world. How old are you? 22? Definitely. You definitely need to post right now to the whole world because I think the world needs more 22-year-old wisdom. Spread! throughout the entire world. Or we need some more Nehemiah's like racial tension. Okay. I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to listen to this person. I'm going to go back and talk to this person. I'm going to go ask this person why they think that. I'm going to ask this person about their post because I'm a little confused by it. I'm going to formulate then what my role as a follower of Jesus in this broken world is in this particular area of brokenness and then I'm going to work and move that's what Nehemiah does that's more in line in how we should be what else do do I see in this just how slow he was and intentional like he's three days in the night just kind of you could picture him Whatever he's taking notes on. And then he comes out. All right. I've taken all the notes. Like a lot of the great men and women of faith and even in the Bible, there's these long periods of God sort of removing them from the public eye in preparation for what God's going to do with them down the road. And I feel like that aspect of development in the life of believers of Jesus has been lost. It's like the opposite. It's like, no, I, I need to process this right now with everyone. No, you don't. You don't. And I, I, part of my thing is just, as a pastor, we're not called to just enter into the noise. We're called to faithfully by the Spirit walk into the noise that Jesus wants us to walk into and be a faithful presence of what Jesus would be like in that moment. And I just didn't see it a whole lot. Again, this is a new church. You might not be implicated in any of this. It might be those people out there, which I get. But I think Nehemiah goes slow, and he's intentional. So again, I ask you, like, what has God placed on your heart? Mental health. Education. Racial divide. Economic gaps. Teen moms. We got people with all sorts of things that God's kind of put in your heart prayerfully, slow, intentionally. Here's what Nehemiah would tell us to do. See it for yourself. Avoid the hype. And go slow and prayerfully in what you're doing. And then get to work. And that's what we see. Here's our final movement. We see movement number three is now Nehemiah has done his work. He's prayed. God has had favor on him. Movement three is we work together because God has always worked through community. Always. So in prep for this sermon, on Facebook, I asked the question, question, what sport is Christianity most like when Christianity is at its best? Like, what are you guys at? And of course, my wrestler friend said, wrestling. It's like, whatever. You haven't thought through anything. But here's what one of my Wrestler friend said this, wrestling because it's the best sport. I'm like, what are you, for? But also because it takes dedication, discipline, hard work. It's an individual competition, but it's also a team sport. All right, not bad. My buddy in Texas said, rowing. I'm like, you would, country club boy. Everyone is pulling as hard as they can, but they cannot see where they're going. The coxswain, whatever that is, I'm guessing that's the leaders entrusted to lead the boat by screaming. He says, just a hot take, Passers that scream the best are also the best passers." thank you. (laughs) This is the answer that was most appealing to me, hockey. Everyone has to play a lot. I don't know hockey. Nearly everyone on the roster plays. There's some danger and there's risk taking, so it's not for the faint of heart. And the team is always celebrated over the individual. And most hockey players are unknown and they refuse to showboat. It's a grind, it takes a lot of work. That's pretty good. Like as you think about Christianity, the church, whatever this is, this gathering of God's people, called out ones is what the New Testament would say. What sport what image comes to mind? Do you have a good image? One of the comments on there was from my friend who's a pastor's kid, and he said, Demolition Derby. Everybody gets hurt and it's terrible. I'm like, yikes. But some of us have church back. Like it's not necessarily a given that church is this great thing in your mind. Why is the church such a beautiful thing? Here's the question a lot of people ask. Why should I be a part of the local church? COVID has done this. We all kind of got to check out. And now as we re-engage, the question we get to ask, do I really want to be a part of the church? What benefits me from joining Redemption Church, SBC, whatever it is, Calvary? What benefits me from doing that? Because my life has been pretty nice having Sundays off. Why should I join the local church? Do you have a good answer for that? My answer is always just the images that scripture gives us that are beautiful. And Andrew read one to us. Nehemiah chapter 3 is the church. It's a bunch of people that never should have had their names written down on anything substantial. And yet they are written in the most precious book that this world will ever know. Working towards something that's not their doing. And God almost watching, smiling from above, saying, I got you. I see you. I'm like, why should I be a part of the local church? Because it's beautiful. It is clunky. It is rough. It is hard. It is work because that's what family is, but it is worth it. And what do we learn as we walk through Nehemiah chapter three? Here's where I want to end our time with 10 things I see from here. It'll be quick, but just to give you an image, go to uh, Nehemiah chapter three. I'm not going to read it again because Andrew did a great job. But here's what Nehemiah, the author, is doing here. Verse 1 says this, Now Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Okay, fast forward to the last verse in chapter 3. Verse 32, And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Starts with the sheep gate, ends with the sheep gate. So I'll just put this, you won't be able to see it that well, but just I'm going show you what Nehemiah is doing. He's starting at the sheep gate and he's kind of going counterclockwise around and he's just telling you what he's witnessed with the people of God working towards the thing that God and he just kind of walks around and he's taking notes of what he sees and that's what chapter three was that's what Andrew just read as we walk around the people of God as we walk around the church as we walk around Redemption North Mountain or whatever church you're part of and we walk around what do we see what's beautiful what's enticing what's appealing about the church Ten things. Here's the first one. This isn't going to sound that great to some of you, but number one, it involves hard work. You're like, that's lame. Where do I see that? Verse 17, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 17. How is this work described? Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king, Artaxerxes, had spoken to me. And they said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The church is work. It's not a reprieve from work in normal life. It's work just like work is. It's work, just like families work. It's work, like marriages work. It's work, like parentings. Work. The church is work. It takes work to build the walls. It takes work to build a church. You're like that is a depressing point. Number one, it's reality though. We don't want to be hypey and like not rooted in scripture, but the church is work. It involves people work. It involves behind the scenes work. All the people working to make this thing happen. And RCs and men's Bible studies. All the prep that some of these guys do for their studies. And Casey for leading women's study. Opening up her home. It's work. There's better ways to relax than to join a church. It's work. But it's worth it. One thing I just think the church is going to do for us in particular with a lot of our younger people. It's going to teach you how to work. Because it takes a while. Like you get to be 22. You're like, man, I've... Worked harder than anyone, maybe ever, in the history. Like, do you really want to go, like, check out the pyramids and talk to kind of how people used to be forced? Calm down there, TikTok master like you. (laughs) Young people, get involved in the church and do work. And when some older person tells you, stop whining, listen to them. Because it's part of what God is doing in you. Teaching you how to work. It's life. Remember the first time I worked with my dad. He's a construction worker. He's a sprinkler fitter. Put sprinklers in homes. I'm like, I need to raise money to go to prom. I'll I'll do this with you, dad. And I get the sprinklers and I kind of sit down. "Ah," And I'm like, he's like, get up. What are you doing? I'm like, what? He's like, you're way too comfortable to do any good work. Work's not supposed to be comfortable, boy. That's what the weekend's for. Get up. Work, it's work, it's work. What else do we see? Second thing, it involves empowering leadership, hopefully. Where do I see that? That's not necessarily a text, but it's sort of how the author comes at presenting this material. So chapter three is written in third person. Meaning Nehemiah gets, his name's not even mentioned once. So this book, book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's project, Nehemiah's prayers, Nehemiah's idea, Nehemiah's vision, Nehemiah's everything. Chapter three, when the work happens, Nehemiah gets removed from the scene. Why? I wrote this, I think good leadership always writes itself out of the story rather than into it. Good parenting writes itself out of the story rather than into it. Our goal is to empower others. And Nehemiah does that, so much so that chapter 3 does not even mention the guy. So the church, when that's at its best, it's going to be like, you know what, North Mountain is about this person or this person. No, it's kind of about all these random people. Why? Because that's what the church is when it's at its best. Here's the third thing we see. It sees itself, the church is actually holy work. Go to verse 20. Nehemiah's description of what he thinks this work is chapter 2 verse 20 then i replied to them the god of heaven is going to make us prosper and we are servants we will rise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in jerusalem he's talking to the opponents which we'll cover next week chapter 3 verse 1 then Eliashib, the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate first set of work what did they do immediately after they consecrated it and set its doors it's the only time the word consecrate is used there to make holy, to kind of set it off as this is a special moment. I'm doing a wedding for one of our couples tomorrow in California. It's a consecrated moment. It's a special moment. And they stop before they move on to the rest of the work, and they consecrate it. Why? Because it's holy work. The people of God are holy workers. Paul says this in Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in you. That you is plural. Y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Y'all are that temple. You are God's holy people in this world. This is a holy thing. This isn't another thing to add to our week. This is a holy moment. We are a holy people. They stop and they consecrate because God's work is holy. What's the next thing I see? It is restorative. Where do I see that? Go to chapter 3, verse 3. The sons of Hesanah built the fish gate. They led its beams, set it next to the doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Ramoth and the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Brech. How did you do this, Andrew? Son of Meshulam, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, Repaired. That word repaired is used 34 times. It's not repair back to its original glory, it's to make strong based off where it's at now. And I can't think of a better word to describe what the church is about. The church exists to make disciples, to make and equip disciples of Jesus Christ. What does the word equip mean? There's this great passage in Matthew chapter 5, 21. The disciples are kind of sitting off the side, off the side of the lake, and they're mending their nets. They're sewing their fishing nets, and that word "mending" is disciple equip. It's they are equipping their nets. They're repairing the holes and making it useful for work again. What is discipleship? It is taking a bunch of broken people, and by God's spirit, God's power, God's wisdom, God's love and grace in our life, we are getting repaired for full use in this world. Like, what a beautiful story God's written. He hasn't left us to our brokenness and our family baggage and all that we come from and all that we are and all the pain and suffering that's happened to us and that's been caused by us. He is repairing us. He is equipping us. We are restorative by nature, church. The church at its best is restorative. It is an equipping group in a broken, fractured, world. Fifth thing I see, the church, when it's at its best, functions as a team of teams. Where do I see that? Let's just start in verse six. Again, I won't read all this, but Joada the son of Pesha, and Meshulam, the son of Besorea, repaired the gate. Just crazy. They lit its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and next to them Repaired Mithah, the, the Gibbonite and Jadon, the Marina, and blah, 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 blah. Verse 8. Next to them, Uzal, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, that phrase next to happens 28 times in this tiny chapter. Like the church is a bunch of people next to. What's your church experience like? Who are you next to? like who do you serve alongside who's your next to we are a team of teams we are the church but the church functions when there's all these little next twos going on even Jesus he said all right disciples go out two by two next to Peter go out next to John James go out next to this person go out next to we are a team of teams who's your next to like the way I think about, there's a lot of way to think about church health, and is this a good church, and how should I assess it? Like here's just a basic question. Who is your next to? Who are you serving alongside that you're not married to? Who's someone else that God has brought alongside, and you guys are doing the work of ministry next to each other? Part of what makes this story beautiful in chapter 3 is just all the next twos. And then the next two, and the next two, and next two. Just beautiful. Here's the sixth thing that we see. This is the one... Sort of negative, I see. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 5. And next to them, the Tikalites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. That's the only negative assessment in this whole chapter. So I'd say this the church actually reveals who you really are. Like, you can be a Christian in thought and in theology, and have all the right answers, and everything buttoned up up here, but once you join an RC, and you're sitting next to this person, and you serve in kids, and you're serving with this person, and you got to deal with this person's parenting ability, and you got to, then it's like, all right, who's really in this? It says, they would not stoop to serve their Lord. That word, their Lord, is actually better probably uh, translated, their supervisors, So it's not like they rejected God. They rejected God, but through the people that said, hey, can you serve next to? No, ain't about that. The church reveals who you really are. The Apostle Paul in the church of Corinth, there's all these divisions going on. He says, I can see that there's lots of divisions. And that's actually a good thing, he says, because it's going to reveal who is really of the Lord. So division sort of kind of exposes, all right, who's really about Jesus? It reveals who you are. It shows all your sin. Like, if I was not in church, I would feel way better about myself. But I have to be around people a lot. And I have to just face this mirror perpetually of all my shortcomings, all my flinches that are just off and wrong and sinful. I could be off, kind of just doing my thing, avoiding people, avoiding the church, and feel a lot better about myself. But I got to enter these situations where it's said of me, He would not stoop, He would not listen, He would not be gracious and it gets exposed, and by grace you get restored, or by grace you get exposed, and you're shown not to be of the Lord. Here's the seventh thing we see. It's local. Let's go to verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. The church, when it's at its best, is local. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haram, repaired Hattush, the son of Hashemaniah, repaired Malchijah the son of Huram and Hashab the son of Moab repaired another section and they all repaired next to or opposite their house like you see what Nehemiah did Chandler you work there next to your house Josh you work there next to your house Genesee you work here right next to your house why because you care about your house you care about what's local to you. The church, when it's at its best, cares about what's local. Like a negative way, my dad, like I said, does construction. And the jobs he hates most are remodels, especially remodels where the people are still living in the house. He's a in. they're like, can you uh, take that little piece and kind of just smooth, just a smidge, like maybe a 16th of an inch. Like, is that too much to ask? Mike, so he doesn't do remodels because then he doesn't have to deal with people who really care about their house he gets to build new homes where he doesn't have to listen to anyone we would all be the same way we're annoying remodelers why because we care about our house the church at its best cares about what's local I think that's one of the biggest blessings that come out of COVID is a lot of people kind of got shuffled around in church and a lot of people realized, I want to be more local. I want to be more in my neighborhood. Like a vision I have, a dream of this church, kind of my wife does find my friends. I don't know if this is a girl thing, but her and her sisters, like they always know exactly where each other's at. I'm like, whatever. But like to think about the church, this find my friend, like wherever you looked in sort of this area, there's always this pocket of Christians from this place. Being a part of what's going on locally. Whether it's something kind of religious feeling like a Bible study or just being a part of a Little League team or being involved in HOA, but we got all these pockets wherever you look. There's all these find my friends from Redemption being a part of what Jesus is doing locally. Why? Because the church at its best is local next to their house, next to their house, next to their house. The eighth thing we see is the church at its best is diverse. And it's gifting. I won't go to all these verses, but we have perfume makers mentioned. We have goldsmiths mentioned. We have rulers of districts. We have rulers of half districts. We've got politicians. We've got merchants. We've got salespeople. We've got restaurant owners. We've got all sorts of people building this house. Some serving in their exact gifting, but most of them serving outside of their natural vocational gifting. That's the church. CEOs holding babies. Very wealthy, successful business people standing at the front door greeting. Women who run all sorts of things throughout the week coming in here and just cleaning up. Why? Because the church is at its best when people are using their gifting. Sometimes God lines it up where your gifting is perfectly in line with what you're doing in the church. But a lot of times it's just, just serve. Just get involved. Just jump in and start working. Let's get this wall built here's what I wrote. Get involved somewhere. But is it my, I need to pray about it. Lord, get involved. If this isn't your church, get involved in whatever church you're, that's it. Like that's just how church is, works when it's at its best. Get involved. Ninth thing I see, it's a family affair. This is Nice in verse twelve, next to him Shalom the son of Heloish, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem repaired. He and his daughters. I love that. Who's working? Him and his daughters. Building a wall. Who's working at this church? David Floyd and his boys carrying everything out after service. Owen Elder walking around helping clean up. Lexi Smith wanted to serve in kids. My son asked me, can I serve all the families involved? All ages, all ranges. That's the church when it's most beautiful. When it's this family affair. And the last thing I see is that it involves glamorous jobs. And it involves ugly jobs. Go to verse 15. Let's look at the glamour involved. And Shalom, the son of Cal Ho- Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, Repaired the fountain gate. He recovered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Pause right there. So some people get to repair the section devoted to the kings, specifically King David, and all that's glorious and beautiful and noteworthy about Jerusalem. They got to repair the king's section. They got to be on stage. They got to be seen. They got to do glorious things. Verse 14, the verse right before that. Malchizah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hecarim, repaired the dung gate. Dung is what you think it is. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. The king's glory. Everything great about King David and Jerusalem and Israel and the dung gate. I was just camping with Bryce and we went to this, I've never done a spot where you actually pay and you have a bathroom. They were repairing the bathroom that are up north that are just nasty. And this guy was serving. Some getting glamorous jobs, some fixing the dung gate. That's the church. We get involved, some of us get to use our giftings in ways that this lines up perfectly. Some of us get to serve and build and be a part of these glamorous things, and some of us are building the dung gate, and yet God sees us. How do we participate in the work of the Lord? According to Nehemiah, we pray and we ask and we move. We investigate, we move towards what God has us praying towards. And then we get involved. I'll say it as clear as I can. You join a church, you commit to a church. We don't have Israel. We have the, now the New Testament, the New Covenant. We are the people of God, bound to God by His Spirit and bound to each other by covenant commitment to the church. And we get involved. That's how you participate in what God is doing in this broken world. You pray and you investigate and then you link arms. And some of you are getting the king's court and some of you are getting the dung game. I wrote this question. Why, though, would we want to participate In the work of the Lord. I believe 100% that Christianity is 100% true. I think a lot of Christians and churches and leaders and pastors and preachers. Don't do a good job talking about how beautiful Christianity is. It's 100% true. But what's beautiful about this. Why would you want to participate in what God is doing in this world? I'm just going to read some verses out of this. Nehemiah 2:8. Here's what he says about this work. The king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Why would you want to get involved? Because God's hand is here. Where the restoring with the gospel and the power of the gospel is happening, God's hand is there. Nehemiah 2 says this. I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And it's something that God places in our heart. Why would you want? Because it's what God has placed in your heart. He's given this burden for this broken world. Nehemiah 2.20 says this. This is the summary statement Nehemiah has about the work of God. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we are servants. We will rise and build. We will succeed. God will do what God wants to do. The New Testament says this. I will build my church. Nothing will stand against it. Why would you want to be a part of that? Because it is 100% guaranteed success. But the other thing is this. Nehemiah 3.14 is there. There's this guy building a dung gate in this successful work that is going to work out. And God sees him. And he writes his name down so that you and I, thousands of years later, can hear about this guy who was off by himself repairing the dung gate. We serve a God that will succeed, and we serve a God that sees us. No matter how little, how trivial, how small, how insignificant you think what you're doing to work towards what God is doing in this world, he sees it, and he's watching, and he's got a smile on his face, just like he did when he watched this guy build the dungate. That is good news, church. No other leader, no other religion, no other system of thought has such a beautiful, big, powerful God who stoops down and sees and watches us in our tiny, little, trivial, seemingly insignificant jobs we're doing as we work to rebuild all that is broken in this world by his power, by his grace, with his gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your church that you are the head of, that we are just a body part in trying to play our role. God, for those in this room that are figuring out what their role is by your spirit, help them move in a direction towards joining the people of God in what they're doing. God, for those who feel unseen, overlooked, insignificant, I pray this, the truth of Nehemiah chapter 3 would ring loud. That the one taking notes that actually matters sees and is pleased. God, for those who would not stoop to serve, I pray that you would humble and convict and challenge. God, for all of us, I just pray that we would see the beauty of what it means to be a part of the local church. Not beauty that in any one moment you can stop and see something amazing, but beauty in this long-term communal effort that will succeed because you said it would and all of our jobs all of our roles all of our service here matters because you're the one that matters most and you're watching and you're with us and your good hand is upon us Jesus we love you and we thank you Amen